Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi there, welcome to the Portal Podcast. I'm Dr. Leslie Deacon and as usual I'm here with Dr. Sarah Lombe. Hello everyone. <laughs> and Thank you Sarah. <laughs> and really happy to have our guests today. So we've got uh, Dr. Nicola Roberts and Miss Demi Price. So I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves. Nicola, do you want to go first? Just tell us a little bit about yourself as a, an academic and your research area. Yeah. I'm Dr Nicola Roberts, as you said, and I'm a senior lecturer in criminology here at the University of Sunderland. My research focuses on gender-based violence. Um, my more recent research is around students' experiences of interpersonal violence on and off campus, their perceptions and strategies of safety on and off campus, and I also evaluate bystander interventions. Thank you very much. Demi, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Demi. Um, I'm currently training to be a probation officer in the probation service. Um, yeah, my kind of research was about gender perceptions of domestic violence. So how did this sort of come about? This is a project. Was this part of your research and you were working on with, with yeah, Nicola? It was my part of my dissertation, yeah, that I did three years ago now. Right, that's yeah. really interesting and you turned it into a a working yeah. paper to share the findings which are really really interesting I have to admit when I was reading it um, I was both interested and incredibly shocked actually by by your findings do you want to just give us like just a little summary of, of the research just yeah. so that our listeners can understand what what happened um yeah so we're kind of you know we're we're sent an online kind of survey out um to students just asking their perceptions of a lot of things about domestic violence um, and it kind of were found that it was massively gendered um, kind of males tended to see a lot of coercive and controlling behaviours not as domestic violence and women tended to yeah um, and that was kind of one of the main things that we we found I think within within the research because when you talk about the behaviours that's one of the things when I was reading it because um, I I work in, in social work and I also supervise um, with Nicola we supervise students with PhDs who are looking into domestic violence one of the things I think for social workers in particular is to try and understand when we use terms like violence and abuse um, there can be people can have a misunderstand what exactly that means so I don't know who, if, whichever one of you wants to sort of address that but can you kind of from your perspective and your research perspective what do we really mean in terms of that difference between violence and abuse okay so uh, you know domestic violence has historically been termed domestic violence but there's been more recent moves mm -hmm. to name it as domestic abuse largely to recognise that the violence isn't just physical in nature that yeah. there are other aspects of the abuse such as psychological and emotional violence financial violence, sexual violence which can be physical as well but the, the terms are often used interchangeably yeah. but there's been much more moves towards the domestic abuse mm -hmm. I mean throughout this interview I will deem it as domestic violence and I 
always have because I mean obviously I do recognise the varying types of abuse but I just feel domestic violence gives it serious mm-hmm. and harmful nature I mean Demi will um, you know talk about it from a practitioner point of view mm-hmm. yeah um, I mean I think within my practice I normally use the term domestic abuse mm-hmm. um, because I think a lot of the times the word violence doesn't I think as Nicola said it doesn't carry that physical element everyone just assumes violence as physical violence yes yeah, yeah. Um, so I think abuse kind of encompasses all of the behavior but it also recognizing that that victim is being abused rather mm-hmm. than it just being kind of one act of violence I think the term domestic abuse definitely encompasses all of that rather than just just the physical yeah because you refer to it as, as being um like a pattern rather than it being just this this single event because it's almost like you can um separate it out and and rather than it just being one thing that's happened it's actually a pattern of behavior do you think like what I'm kind of getting is that abuse does that kind of fit better with that idea of of what we're discussing here I think so yeah yeah I think it 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 recognizing the the kind of trauma it goes through I think abuse Mm -hmm. is a, a good term to describe as you say, those pattern of behaviours yeah. rather than just an isolated event. Because mm. you're right. Because like with when I was thinking about my practice when I was reading this, and and obviously because I, I worked in child protection, so I would have to speak to families where that there was, and and at the time we did just use the term domestic violence. When I raised that with with male perpetrators, their in, immediate response was, "I didn't hit her." And that was it. I didn't hit her. So the word violence, rightly or wrongly, just does get, as you were saying, Nicola, it it gets connected more with a physical act rather than an understanding of actually there is abusive behaviour that goes on within these relationships. And that's the problem. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that links in um, with coercive control as well, which I know people, um, a lot of people either don't understand what it means or aren't aware of it. So I was wondering if you could explain... Um, what what is coercive control as well? Okay, so the coercive control, um, which is now a criminal offence, it's a, a range of behaviours because mm-hmm. you know for s- the defining feature of domestic violence and domestic abuse is that it is a pattern. Mm-hmm. It isn't a one-off yeah. incident. Yeah, that might be deemed as something else, but not domestic violence. So coercive and controlling behaviour, the perpetrator is using. A range of behaviours that could be the abusive behaviours or physical violence and they're doing it to intimidate mm-hmm. and make fearful the victim because uh, they're seeking to gain power and control over that victim particularly to make the victim dependent on the yeah. perpetrator in some way um, that might affect their daily activities such as they might seek to isolate them from their friends or family from the workplace they could be monitoring their movements, checking mm-hmm. their messages. There's a whole range of behaviours yeah. that are deemed as coercive and controlling behaviours and are now recognised in the criminal law. And that was the bit that, that in your research that, that the male respondents, just they didn't seem to, to recognise that at all as being any form of abusive or violent behaviour in any way. Well, some, some did, but right. um, it, it was more likely females, women were more likely to recognise 
significantly likely to recognise more of the controlling behaviours yeah. than the men. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really it, it's it's sort of created a concern for me that you've got a huge you've got a huge problem here that if you don't if it's not recognised then it's not called out and not just within those relationships is it it's it's more a wider society that's then we're not calling out that kind of connects possibly with the bystander work that you do Nicola I know that's not part of what you did in this article but just it makes me think that that's kind of where people are acknowledging behavior that really is, is concerning this coercive controlling mis- and misogynistic behavior and we don't really we're not calling that out well, no, the, the public story of domestic violence is is still very much uh, physical in nature, and we'll yeah. talk a bit more about that. But, but bystander intervention, you know, where bystanders intervene mm-hmm. into problematic behaviours, whether that's before, during or after an incident, um, and, the, and the bystander would intervene to... Um, to send out a message that actually, you know, like you were saying, the behaviour is inappropriate, it's yeah. unacceptable. And the more that people do that at, at a community level, yeah. the, the idea is that you will change social perceptions around what is problematic behaviour. Yeah. And, you know, but the issue, and I've wrote about this looking at bystander interventions, the problem is is going back to, for example, coercive control, what is problematic behaviour? Mm-hmm. How do you name yeah. something as inappropriate to begin with? Because only then can bystanders begin to think about intervening. Yeah. So it's about yeah. naming the behaviour as abusive. Mm-hmm. I think not just bystanders, but I suppose for professionals as well, so the police, social workers, probation workers, <laughs> you know, anyone... Um, who might be kind of called in to intervene or respond Mm. to situations need to be able to recognise it as well. Do you feel like amongst practitioners um, or in practice aspects such as coercive control are being recognised now? Um, To some degree, I think. Um, But, I mean, I think when we talk about kind of coercive control, I think it's, as Nika says, those little things and I think it's recognising that if a, a perpetrator or a victim disclosed something that if you weren't fully trained or you weren't fully educated on those little things, you might miss that and not regard that as coercive control. Mm-hmm. But it's that education that makes you realise, oh, wait a second, that's not normal behaviour. That's unacceptable. But looking at that as one incident, it doesn't give you that overview of coercive mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. What are some of the common risk factors for domestic abuse? So, well, it, it depends. If you're looking at it from a victim's point of view, you would uh, there's certainly the, um, uh, you know, young women and girls, uh, mm. the more likely gender to be uh, victimised. And the age range, the 16 to 24 age range, is uh, a really high risk age group for victimisation of young young women and girls. Um, if you're looking at perpetrators, the perpetrators are more likely to be male than female. And going back to these coercive and controlling behaviours, the, the, the early uh, warning signs in a relationship would be the coercive and controlling behaviours, these 
the risk factors, um, the warning signs that you want to be looking out for because, you know, domestic violence is a pattern. It predominantly will get worse Mm -hmm. and could lead to um, fatal homicides or, you know, the early risk factors would be the isolation, the monitoring, restricting someone's movements, checking messages you know, they would be key behaviours to be looking out for there. Did you want to say? I think speaking from kind of a practice point of view, um, we kind of look at things like experience of DV, we've witnessed it growing up. Um, that always in one of our risk assessment it flags up um as a risk factor. Obviously things like the use of drink, the use of drugs, mm-hmm. um, kind of relationship history. I think is that looking at the perpetrators? Yeah, perpetrators yeah. predominantly in practice. Yeah, because mm-hmm. um, I think it's a witnessing DV. It's it's if you know that about a perpetrator, you can then go into kind of what are their values about relationships, and mm-hmm. then you can pick something up a lot more easily if you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we do definitely look at a lot more in probation. That was uh, that kind of comes to a practical question I had because when you you know when you were designing the survey, I would, obviously you would have had all of this information, but we, you don't always put this in articles. Um, when you were asking the question of, of of the people who answered the survey, were you asking them about um, their general views on domestic violence, or did you ask them to reflect on their own? relationships when they were talking about their understanding of it just general views yeah, just general, general perceptions because yeah. I was interested if that might shift you know like they might see that but my I don't I'm not saying you guys have got the answer but it did make me think are people honest about how they actually behave in their relationship and it would be interesting to sort of know do they, can they actually connect with those behaviours? For them, they won't necessarily see them as coercive or controlling, but checking phones, you know, wanting partner to spend as much time with them and not other people, all of this kind of behaviours could cross over, couldn't it, into just, you know, someone who's insecure and things like that. So it'd be interesting. I don't think I've got a question, really, because <laughs> you've answered <laughs> it. But I was just sort of interested in, in that because it's almost about how you position your question as to that's the response you're going to get. So these people were just talking generally. Yeah. So we certainly don't know that they don't. They could be also violent, um, controlling themselves. Yeah. But not see it, and that seems to be part of the problem. If I'm right in what you've been saying, which is that it's it's people not perceiving behaviour towards them as controlling, and people not perceiving it towards others as controlling. Yeah. And that is difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I think <laughs> even just speaking from practice, I've got a lot of cases that don't recognise because it hasn't been physical. They don't yeah. recognise the behaviour as abusive. And I mean, one of my cases, it was against an ex-partner. That was physical violence. And just because it was against an ex-partner, he doesn't recognise that as domestic violence. Because they're not in a relationship. Yeah. So they're, they're putting these boundaries around, yes, it's not this. It sounds like people kind of acknowledge domestic violence is is bad Mm -hmm. but it's not me because yeah that's kind of what seems to come across that's certainly my practice experience as well that it's like I don't want to be identified as that yeah I think as well a lot of the a lot of the people that were kind of get through far coercive control and behavior they're very quick to tell you that they didn't physically abuse them yeah um 
and I think it's again that's kind of it's a bit of othering I think it's yeah. that's not me I didn't do yeah. that I'm yeah. not a woman beater because but then they don't recognise yes but this was still abusive yes so they don't see that that actually you can be abusive in relationships through your controlling behaviour yeah. which is, means we've got a problem yeah, yeah. <laughs> which think, is what yeah. I think comes across in this article doesn't yeah. it I think that's yeah. what's so interesting about this paper yeah. because it kind of gives a bit of depth to that practice experience that you're having what's actually going on in terms of what people understand about this area mm-hmm. um, I know we were wondering what courses the students were registered on and whether they might be enrolled in courses where they would have some kind of awareness of these things already or whether they were just a range of programs where domestic abuse might not be looked at at all it was um typically it was quite generalized i kind of put the the survey link out to a number of groups um but a lot of the groups were predominantly social science based okay um so i didn't ask about courses Mm -hmm. but you know, it was kind of distributed a lot more to social sciences groups, so I would kind of assume that a lot of social sciences students probably completed the survey. Okay. Was it predominantly undergraduate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Do it do we do you know anything from other research about has, has other research like this been done with other other people in that age group, not necessarily at university? The literature review did review uh, young people's views mm-hmm. of um, not necessarily of domestic violence, but it was about when and ju- when young people, male and female, would justify when violence was appropriate. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, and a lot of that was around the way women uh, were constructed in terms of their stereotypical gender roles. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it was often justified in the research if women were not conforming to those gender roles, such as maybe they weren't cooking or cleaning or looking after the children in the way they should, and if they deviated from their gender roles, then then you know young boys and girls were likely to justify the violence against them. So <clears throat> there is there are there is research out there on young people. And their views that are forged, worrying views that are forged, quite young. And when you look at the ages of the samples in the research, certainly by the time they're 11, these worrying views are formed that justifies the use of violence in intimate relationships. Mm. That's really interesting, actually, because what you've just said really highlights that this isn't just about an individual interpersonal issue but actually this is this is something about society and structural and societal factors that are Im- influencing um, the way that we see gender and, and the gender roles, as you say. So therefore, you know, does it make sense to just respond to domestic abuse with an interpersonal <laughs> intervention? Yeah. You know, that, and that's, that comes through in your paper as well, that actually something more than that is needed because it's not just about that. There is something bigger going on. Um, yeah, that's um, quite an interesting sort of conclusion that maybe we can talk about a bit more as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, was it? Because I it was interested in how it kind of when you talked about the young people there, Nicola, that it, it, that connects across to contextual safeguarding. So, I mean, when I was practicing, there used to be a common thing of of a young person, you know, responds with their feet. They can get out of places. They can go. So, 
because the child protection process is 0 to 18 basically and so a lot more needs to be done about recognising the risk factors for young people because they're not just in the family and that obviously as you go through adolescence the influence of external factors becomes much more significant and I think what you were saying before about what those risk factors can be around things like um, what they're expecting of of a, in a relationship, what they think in terms of you know gender perceptions on what's expected, but also those things around you know the actual behaviours around checking things, all of that. I think that's for me that's really beneficial for people who are working in contextual safeguarding to be looking at all of those things because it sounds to me as if if you dig, it's there. You know, like the, there there is information there. It's not actually hidden because if they don't see it as a problem they don't hide that behavior that be fair do you see that in i don't know if you work demi with younger people or is it mainly adults that you work with it's mainly adults yeah but i think even just speaking quite generally i think it's noticing kind of again just small things of say you had someone a young person in kind of an online relationship Mm -hmm. and they felt like they kind of couldn't either be ever offline or without a phone it's recognizing okay, is that healthy? Yeah. Because that might be a warning sign of being in that online abusive relationship. And I think it's it's just noticing those things and being aware of kind of what 16, 17 year olds are doing in order to inform yourself of what can be done yeah. rather than just assuming, oh, they're a teenager, they're always going to be on the phone. It's, it's yeah. knowing what they're getting up to, who are they speaking to. Like that. Yeah, so rather than it like being about the fear of missing out type behaviours, you're actually looking for but what's their relationships with others like and it isn't necessarily just romantic relationships, mm-hmm. it's how they are with how they're being treated within those because yeah. I suppose there's a, a tendency towards people accepting behaviour from not just intimate partners but from other people that they've known. Yeah. It's it's just really interesting stuff. It, mm-hmm. it makes you sort of feel a bit concerned as well for how it's very complicated to deal with because you really like you were saying before you're talking about the need for the almost massive structural changes in how we perceive gender roles and how we perceive behavior towards other people and I'm just trying to think about the practitioner who's like well I've got to do something today (laughs) what do I do today and I suppose the impression I'm getting is it's about the questions that you're asking trying to dig a little bit into looking for these little trigger points as to whether or not there is that from a potential perpetrator and then from potential victims as well. I wanted to ask you about the ethical aspects of this type of research because I think that's really interesting when you're involving participants and working with people to talk about very sensitive topics and how we approach and manage that. Um, So I was wondering kind of what your thoughts were about the ethics of this research Um, And what did you find about people's willingness to participate and kind of if you can speak to maybe some of the potential or actual impacts on people or why they might be willing to speak about this kind of topic in a research project, that would be great. That was a lot of questions rolled into (laughs) it. Talk to to me about the ethics Um, in your research. Well, I think obviously, as, as we kind of said before, a lot of the, I presume a lot of the students who kind of responded to the research was social science students and I think that probably did open it up a bit more because it's a bit more if you're speaking about it in kind of a a university setting you're a lot more likely to talk about it Um, 
I mean, with regards to ethics, I kind of I put on at the end a list of kind of domestic violence organisations if they were struggling um, with that. But with regards to kind of the impact, I didn't ask about that at the end of my um, research, which I know a lot of research has. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, I didn't ask about that because I felt like that would that may hinder um, the impact itself. If I'm then, you know, if I'm asking about kind of domestic violence in a, a generalised capacity, it might then hinder if I'm then asking how that impacted on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, I did kind of guide them towards organisations if it did affect them. Mm-hmm. So you sort of took into account, you know, those care aspects in terms of being able to signpost. And yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we didn't we didn't actually give a definition of domestic violence so they they, they wouldn't we didn't do that we just said you know these behaviours Um, so in terms of the willingness to participate I mean my research survey research I've done on student bodies since then uh, usually generate around a 6 to 10% response rate of the sample population Uh, I think when we look at this research we've done here it looks around a four percent um but you did do um hard copies to increase the response rate from males so that's why we get quite almost a clear gender split there Mm -hmm. don't we it's almost Mm -hmm. 50 50 but in my other research i've done it is predominant it's online surveys of women are m- much more likely to complete the surveys than men. Mm-hmm. So, uh, b- and and that's around this sensitive type of research, asking about experiences of interpersonal violence, um, mm-hmm. perceptions of safety, strategies of safety, and so forth. And for this research here, we're talking about that's you know domestic violence. So, do you have any thoughts about why women are more likely to participate when you because you're not specifically asking about experiences of domestic violence or you weren't in this research which might then suggest that women would be more likely because they're more likely to have experienced it but in more gen- do you have any thoughts about why um, I'm not I don't not this one but the research I've done where I've done online women are more likely mm-hmm. to complete mm-hmm. uh, the surveys the 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 student population there are more women than men so we have to recognize that there are more mm-hmm. women than men but disproportionately though women are more likely to complete surveys maybe because they have more to say about the aspects we're Mm. asking them about Um, and maybe men when I mean more research needs to be done to this in terms of qualitative research maybe men either don't have much to say or they don't want to say yeah Okay, thank you. I know from um, a project that I've completed around domestic abuse and older people's experiences, to it was two older women who wanted to come and be part of that research project, and they they said the reasons they wanted to be involved is because they wanted to to tell their story and they wanted yeah. their experiences to be heard and they wanted to improve things for other people. So you know, maybe if women are more likely to have experienced it, they're more likely to want to contribute if you if they feel that might have a positive impact for other people I, I don't know that's just <laughs> again might be interesting to understand and explore that but yeah if you're looking at student populations then there's a natural slant anyway I suppose isn't there um but yeah thank you 
Like what you're saying about like um, women more likely to be complete in survey. When I'm just sitting there thinking about my research projects, it does whatever it is. I remember doing research into child protection processes, and I had to actively go out to try and get some fathers to engage because it's just automatically they they weren't there they didn't respond so it's like it almost from from a methods perspective we have to actually they they are a hard to reach population mm. you know that we have to actively seek to some extent because it's really important that they we hear what they're thinking about this otherwise we're not getting the full picture are we so just to sort of move on I'm interested in the issue of underreporting and of domestic violence by victims but regardless of what their gender is regardless of age or any any other issues and what I was feeling from the findings is the problem with the controlling if you don't see behaviour as being controlling then that adds an extra element into you, they're not going to report it so people are not seeing it and I'm just wondering what your views on that were so I'm assuming you're referring to underreporting to the police and the authorities. I just, I suppose it comes to that point, but I think that even in the first step of saying it to anybody, if they don't recognise it, they're not going to necessarily say it, and even if they did say it to a friend, the friend wouldn't recognise it. So I suppose, yeah, if, if we think about the official aspect where somebody would become involved. Well, you know, the crime surveys over the years have shown us that... The, the victims are very rarely reported to the police and the authorities generally domestic violence they're more likely to tell friends family, neighbours right. so generally domestic violence is underreported to the police then you've got to factor in what, what we're talking about here coercive and controlling behaviour which often isn't named as abusive mm-hmm. and the crime surveys show us generally that in order to report something to a crime survey or to the police, you've got to name it yeah. as a problem. Yeah. But not only do you have to name it as a problem, you have to name this as criminal if you're wanting to report it yeah. to the police. So you have to have that legal framework there, which, you know, coercive and controlling behaviour has only recently, you know, in 2015, become a criminal offence. Mm-hmm. And it is a complex set of behaviours you know, and a picture has to be built up and, and, and one has to recognise that they are a victim of that so you know, there will be under-reporting of that anyway under the banner of domestic violence mm-hmm. so I suppose that, that connects in Nicola to what kind of a thing that came through with the article which is about education isn't it because really what we're saying here is that people don't Recognise that this is quite new, that it's been extended. They're not recognising that behaviour as being violent and therefore really we're talking about education here as being a really important element because I think that came through in the article. Yeah. I think the, the main issue is that with a lot of specifically coercive and controlled behaviour, it's because obviously perpetrators are very manipulative a lot of it's done under the thing of but I really care about you mm-hmm. I'm controlling where you go and what you spend your money on and who you see because I care, I don't want you to kind of get in with the wrong people and I think that's the issue because if I mean, going back to kind of talk about young people 
if you have a young person going to their friends and saying, oh, well, my, my boyfriend's checking my phone and he's checking where I've been, he's checking who I'm talking to, you might have, you know, a friend that says, yeah, but he cares about you. He clearly <laughs> cares where you, where you go. And I think it's things like that that we need to be more educated on. Yeah. It's those little things that are recognising, yes, someone might care about you, but also they can be abusive towards you. Mm-hmm. And that that, over a long period of time, wanting kind of photos wherever you've been, mm-hmm. that's extensive and working out kind of the normality of things like that. It mm. also sounds like it's getting used to um, the the sort of culture of the generation as well, especially when you're talking about young people. And mm. I'm thinking about when I was that age, we didn't do any of that kind of stuff because you've then got a factor in the social media aspects of all of that and the mm. way in which people communicate now and and the fact that we've got phones that are connected and can mm-hmm. tell you where you are yeah, yeah. at any given time and you've got to purposely go into settings to avoid things like that so we've got like a a very messy situation it sounds to me like we're not um we're not there in terms of being able to really understand what's going on here in the in the shifts that are like making some of that coercive of and controlling behaviour more possible yeah. in those young people's relationships. Yeah, well, I mean, even when you think about things like Snapchat maps, yeah. like, that's something that, obviously, all young people have now, and it would be probably considered strange if you didn't have your location on. And then that I think that makes, if you're in an abusive relationship, it then makes that behaviour more normalised to question, yeah. well, why haven't you got your lo- location on? Rather than... You know, there's there's a lot more now with technology. There's more new ways of abusing someone rather than just being, he's not letting me go out or he's not doing this. I think it's a lot more normalised in a younger generation. That's where that behaviour will, Mm -hmm. you won't recognise that and you will just continue kind Mm -hmm. of going through that abusive relationship. It's a very complicated landscape when you take all of that into account, isn't it? I think reflecting on that and what Leslie was saying about education and, and sort of things... Um, changing you obviously wrote the paper a while ago do you think you've seen any developments or changes any positive hopefully or negative since you wrote the paper well in the paper we talk about there have been campaigns particularly campaigns aimed at young people Mm -hmm. through soaps for example Hollyoaks actors they engaged in this is abuse campaign and there's Mm -hmm. research been done on the effectiveness of, of that campaign and it's not as clear that that that, um, the campaign was I mean the Home Office might suggest it was effective but research might suggest otherwise it's more problematic than that Um, and and Demi you before was saying something interesting about um, the cases you work with I think it's, it's difficult because when you think about campaigns and soaps and things like that I mean, just speaking from practice, my the demographics of people who watch soaps are a lot different to the people who are kind of getting arrested for these types of offences. Um, a lot of my cases are kind of working class males that are 27, 28. They're not the kind of people that would sit down and watch a soap. Mm-hmm. So you're not really educating those people through these campaigns. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I think the only thing that I think has changed is making domestic abuse more normalised to talk about um, mm-hmm. but I think in terms of how we address it it's I don't feel like we've moved that much forward personally mm-hmm. we, we have seen you know compulsory um, sex and relationship education coming in secondary schools mm. but 
the problem is, like what we see from this research, is by the time children leave primary, those justifications for the mm-hmm. use of violence in intimate relationships are yeah. already forged. So whilst primary school children compulsory now to have relationship education, mm-hmm. that's it's much more general than sex and healthy relationship yeah. education, although some schools might opt into that. So some, some, some more needs to be done in terms of, you know, challenging them stereotypes mm-hmm. and, you know, stereotypical gender roles and, you know, teaching about healthy relationships, particularly the empowerment of women and girls uh, from a young age and age-appropriate mm-hmm. um, yeah. curriculum in, in the primary schools is important. Yeah, because it is you're talking about really significant shifts that need to happen, and therefore it does. You're not going to get a change overnight. It's something that does have to come in earlier, and it's about a generational shift to change a way the next generation are thinking, whilst trying to change current generations into mm. thinking. I mean, when you're when you were talking there, Demi, I was thinking, yeah, I, I don't know anything about that Snapchat thing whatsoever, <laughs> and it's a whole different landscape. Like mm. you're saying, Sarah, it's it's. It's very complicated to think about um, where people might get messages, you know, and how to engage them because, you know, people aren't always happy about it being in the school environment either. I know some, you know, my son's just had that that age point for, for the sex education side and he's getting all that information from friends and it's spreading and the questions have changed that he asks me at home. He comes with different questions now. And that's good because I can hear it coming through. So it's just about getting... Because children are curious and questioning and that is the time, isn't it, to try and try and get them. Have, have you sort of moved any further in research in this area or are you doing different things? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that come out of this research is it is a statistical piece of research. And we know there are gendered... Uh, aspects as to you know females are more likely to uh, view uh, controlling behaviors as domestic violence than males but we don't necessarily know why that is mm-hmm. and more research needs to be done on 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 why that is and um and that's much more qualitative research mm-hmm. you know you you do have an official definition currently at the moment. It is an official definition. It's not necessarily a legal definition. Mm-hmm. And you're assuming, one, that all people understand that definition. Yeah. And uh, it's clear they don't. Yeah. For, for, for whatever reason. And this, this is for practitioners as well. Yeah. They may not understand the definition, like you were saying, about what is domestic violence, what is domestic abuse are they the same and so forth yeah some more research needs to be done in into looking at well why do the genders view the behaviors as different because understanding that it, it is key to unpicking and maybe changing the mm-hmm. views because yeah. you you were talking about cases before demi where um where, where some of your cases they were saying they didn't understand domestic violence mm. because the partner was an ex-partner yeah mm. and I think it's really difficult because I mean 
because we haven't got domestic violence as a, a set crime on his record it's just down as battery so he thinks yeah but that was just a battery that's not domestic violence because I got charged with a battery that's on my previous convictions mm-hmm. and it's it's difficult to then challenge that because it isn't a DV crime it's not listed on that it's just down as a battery and mm-hmm. having that discussion with him and trying to make him understand that yeah but it was against an ex-partner and I mean he's fully admitted that kind of the relationship was toxic and volatile and there was abusive behaviours in that but with regards to that actual crime he doesn't regard that as DV and I think when we talk about kind of the definition it's all well and good to have a definition but obviously the people who are kind of perpetrators and victims they're not sat at night looking through that definition so it doesn't Mm -hmm. help no and it's making me interested to know I want I'm curious as to why there is that perception from him and for and maybe from others that uh battery's all right mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually having it as domestic but that's not all right so there must be some sort of cultural perceptions around that's something to do with that as a negative yeah but what is it like we have our obviously we've discussed the negatives of it but what is it they're perceiving as being negative about it that therefore they don't want that said mm-hmm. and and it's 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 if we it's been it's an issue that's been there for so long and yet when we're talking here and when reading it I feel like we haven't scratched the surface mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. issue so basically you two've got a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> to come in terms of your research have you got any specific research plans are you did you plan to go in further about the qualitative side of this or well <laughs> I, I did discuss with a colleague um, because her existing research has also inadvertently looked at through perceptions of women who who didn't realise they were victims mm. but if you look at a definition of domestic violence they were a victim but they didn't realise that and it's quite interesting so we were thinking of doing a a survey, but a validated survey, and I'm not sure there is one in existence of how we want it to look in terms of domestic violence behaviours and whether we'd have to create it for, for a general population, not a, a random sample, I don't think we're going to get that, but a general population of, um, they're not necessarily victims and perpetrators, mm-hmm. but a general population to look at on a wider scale about perceptions of domestic violence Um according to gender and, and maybe age and so forth but also then following up with that survey as part of the research we would want to look at well how, where do them perceptions come from how are they constructed yeah. why does the the um why does the participant believe that you know in a much more qualitative way yeah. so mm-hmm. um yeah, that research is always on the agenda, <laughs> on the horizon somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that yeah. I think it would be worthy research yeah, to definitely. do. Definitely would be. Yeah, because I think also, you know, what what we're talking about in terms of um, understanding of domestic abuse and recognizing um, that as part of your own situation. When we think about coercive control, I know you said Nicola earlier that it was two thousand fifteen. 
so you know that's not been around for that long like you said people aren't sitting at home studying the legal framework <laughs> and saying oh coercive control right okay I now understand you know so there is something about how that gets out there and I was wondering more broadly whether you feel like the current legal framework is sufficient or if from this research and other research that you've done there are any other um, sort of policy responses that you would like to see developed well the legal framework and this it goes back to you know and I know things have changed quite a lot with domestic violence uh, in terms of some of the uh, legislation around this but because our criminal justice system is very adversarial in nature mm. that you know you are allowed in a, a defense but mm. all all um defendants need to give a defense encouraged to give in a defense and you know Jeff Hearn talks about this in his 1998 book violences of men about how they talk about and justify the violence how they excuse it how they minimize it and part of his sample was a criminal justice sample and they talk from that position of being asked over and over again by the police solicitors um, the judiciary for that defense so defences that they might draw on to mitigate their responsibility mm. is completely accepted in an mm -hmm. adversarial criminal justice system. Yeah. So then defences might blame the victim, they might blame their being intoxicated. Mm. Um, so I think it's very difficult because you have a system that encourages those kind of mitigation of culpability, even in domestic violence cases. But I know some of the legislation has changed around that and some mitigating factors are not allowed for domestic violence perpetrators because when you look at domestic violence behaviours, like we've just been talking about, they are a pattern, they are purposeful, they are intention, and all this, this they serve to you know control the victim and it's over a period of time... Mm -hmm. It, it is a pattern and for that reason the perpetrator should be held accountable mm -hmm. in order to begin a process of change so the legal the criminal justice system I should say you know allows them to mitigate some of that responsibility and I, 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 that is a, a structural issue with the criminal mm -hmm. justice system and other criminal justice systems globally as well so that's a much bigger problem in terms of how the legal system yeah. works, but mm. allowing and fostering and accepting mitigations of mm. responsibility. Because when we were talking before, by the time they, for example, might get to Demi as a probation, as a, yeah. a trainee probation officer, you know, you wanting them to accept responsibility, aren't you? Yeah. I think as well it comes down to kind of the penalties that they're getting. I know a lot of a lot of domestic violence kind of offences they'll have say three or four cautions or they'll have kind of a few NFAs and I think it's then that's not then getting the message through to perpetrators that that behaviour is kind of unacceptable. If they're mm -hmm. just receiving a caution for that behaviour, what's stopping that behaviour them from kind of going out and carry on that behaviour? Mm. Um, especially when we talk about coercive and controlling behaviour because it does carry a lesser penalty than 
and physical violence. Mm-hmm. So even within kind of the legal framework, that's saying that's not as serious as physical violence. And often, obviously, when victims go towards the police, that's happened for a number of, of years or months and it's gotten to the point where they view that as serious but then they're not being kind of supported mm-hmm. by the justice system. Mm-hmm. So it's like the system is set up that it, whilst it's got this information in it, it's like the rest of the structures around it are almost at their barriers to actually people be able to engage with it, access support. It's allowing people to think it's okay to get ex- have excuses for why they've done it and that it's their fault because of x y and z and they're allowed to do it and so where's the stuff in the middle of that before they then get to the probation where's where's the education at that point i would imagine that i mean because i know in child protection when we had that we we did have things like domestic violence perpetrators program Mm -hmm. where we'd be but that's in child protection because we were saying well look this child's not safe in this environment you need to go and you need to learn and then we were referring women to like women's aid for example to go on on the um, I can't even remember what their programme was took a call, but it was understanding that they were mm-hmm. a, a victim of, of mm-hmm. domestic violence because that, that acknowledgement wasn't there. It's like we've got some of that in place in different parts of society, but not across the board. Yeah, it, so, it almost kind of seems as though the addressing that behaviour becomes after the seriousness yeah. and the offence. Yeah. It, it seems like it has to get to a certain point and, and then, then we'll intervene mm-hmm. rather than focusing hold on, why don't we just educate everybody on what a healthy relationship is? Yeah, but then even, you know, in the criminal justice system, not everybody will be afforded a domestic violence perpetrator programme. No. The more risky they are, the more likely they'll get Mm. that intervention. But do such interventions work? Well, you know, so there's (laughs) a lot of inconclusive evidence (laughs) in the research. Yeah. You know, so I think what we're saying here and other academics have said it as well that early intervention challenging them worrying behaviours in young people and and empowering women and girls and and challenging gender stereotypical roles from a very young age before they leave primary school is the way to go because like you say it's too late really once once they're in the criminal justice system yeah we need to wait for that shift (laughs) Yeah. Well, there has been, I mean, there have been pilot interventions done in schools that mm-hmm. aim to teach about healthy relationships. Um, and there's been, you know, the, we look at this in this research paper, there is there have been problems of engaging boys and girls, how you do it, how you educate them. Uh, you know, psychological and emotional violence is very difficult for them to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, there's, there's, there's a lot of work needs to be done. But also you are competing against the primary cl- curriculum yeah. of targets yes. within that. And, and it doesn't fit in there. It's a well, different issue. Well, because you, you can't measure it very easily, no. can you? You can't measure the success of, uh, of, of you know, what, what the programme aims to achieve at the age of 11. But when you look at the homicide rates, domestic homicide rates mm-hmm. of young people and, and women you might then think about well maybe education, early education is needed Yeah mm-hmm. mm. But it'll take a long time to find that out and to see has it had an impact and things like that Well I think you're up against different kind of structures to yeah. do with you know, economy Yeah. you know, and and schools as 
um, meeting targets mm-hmm. um, that are that are different to the well being of, of of the pupils in them, really. Mm-hmm. It, across all of the podcasts that we've done, Nicola, what's it ultimately came down to is that oh, the social work practitioners that we're aiming this at need time and space to take on board information that from research and be able to then think about how to help how they can implement that in their practice and this is obviously even bigger (laughs) than that which is that we also now we need to also include the teachers because it's about having like you said it goes up against economy and different issues and actually where is the space for this because actually we know there's a problem and we've had this across the board haven't we Sarah mm-hmm. there's a problem in in that's going on and people know about it but it's it's just not getting its space in in the right areas and it's not getting time and the kind of yeah that's like the sad yeah. point <laughs> all of yeah. this yeah just um to kind of follow on from that thinking about the implications for social workers in particular but perhaps other practitioners too if there's you know you've already talked about the role in schools um but what key messages do you think your paper raises for practitioners and particularly for social workers if there are any that you've um i think i think i alluded to this before about practitioners uh, uh, well, i've probably said it before about that you know about the definition of domestic violence um which a lot of research has been done into domestic domestic violence and that's how that generation has been generated and altered over the years but that not everyone understands no. that definition and you know that the, the cases of offenders that Demi deals with may not understand that mm-hmm. definition and practitioners may not understand that definition Demi was talking to before she understands it because you know she has a undergraduate and a a master's in criminology and she's focused on domestic violence in in terms of her uh, what she's uh, researched and so forth so I think there is needs to be a recognition that the, the the cases that come forward to practitioners they might have different views yeah. and because more research needs to be done into where why they have different views the the automatic assumption is that they're denying it, they're, mm-hmm. they're minimising it, they're justifying it, justifying the, the behaviour, which may well be the case, but there might just be a a genuine lack of understanding yeah. about what is domestic violence and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. so having a really clear understanding of that definition, what it means... What kinds of things to be aware of really is crucial, isn't it, actually? Yeah, but even then, as we know, the social demographics, gender Mm -hmm. is going to... People are going to view it differently Mm -hmm. and justify it differently, and we need to understand, well, why that is. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't all agree on the same things for various reasons. I think more research needs to be done into why you don't think that's domestic violence and yeah. Yeah, I what do you, you think it is if it, think, that yeah. sounds yeah. like a really important next step for you so we'll, uh, we'll your next have project. to have you back on the podcast when you've done that bit of work and see what you found out I think for practitioners I think it's just as we said before it's education mm-hmm. especially if you think about kind of teachers 
even from when I was at school, kind of if a boy was mean to you, it was obviously like because he likes you. Yeah, it's instilling those those views so early on, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of checking what you're kind of instilling into young children that yeah. is then going to follow then throughout their life. And I think, especially in things like the police, it's very a lot of police officers. I still still think that. Oh, it's just a domestic. That's all we're going to do, and it's mm-hmm. it's not regarded as being serious, even though we know kind of how many women actually die as a result of domestic mm-hmm. violence. Um, I mean, even speaking from kind of a personal point of view, when police kind of came out of my house when I was younger, it was okay, sleep on it, and if you still think this is an issue in the morning, then you mm-hmm. can report it. It's not recognizing that no, that family needs intervention there and then, mm-hmm. and I think going forward, it's things like that that need to be really taken mm-hmm. as seriously rather than just kind of oh it's just an argument yeah so you know really actually acknowledging the seriousness of it and not dismissing it which mm-hmm. sounds yeah and that's particularly key for the controlling and coercive behaviours yeah. mm-hmm. because you know when you look at Evan Stark's work American Academic the behaviours can be quite a fast track into domestic homicide quite quickly mm-hmm. And that's worrying, like yeah. you said before. If there's often there's no physical violence, but a terrible history of coercive and controlling behaviours, particularly isolation mm-hmm. for the victim, and that can lead to domestic homicide. And 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 that's a worry in terms of intervening mm-hmm. into that mm-hmm. before anything fatal happens. Mm-hmm. Going back to um, the bystander intervention, the, 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 the part of this community level response about mm. challenging, you know, inappropriate behaviours and challenging social norms that uphold violence against women. I know increasingly bystander interventions are becoming more popular in higher education and universities, but they more likely to focus on sexual violence, mm. you know, particularly the student cohort, um, sexual violence on and off campus. But there is a role, and, and you know, more bystander interventions in America will focus on, we'll look at domestic violence, mm. we'll look at how bystanders can intervene safely, whether that's before, during or after an incident, to... Um, interrupt if you like the violence and challenge it and challenge the unacceptability of the beliefs and behaviours that are happening and um, because we know that friends and family and neighbours are likely to know people do know that the violence is going on and the abusive behaviours it's how to enhance bystander intervention safely mm-hmm. for, for the bystander but also for for the victim and I think more needs to be done on that because mm-hmm. it is a community problem it is it is a social problem yeah it's 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 an endemic and um in society and um a more societal community response is needed for that reason yeah I think that's a really yeah. really important point you've just made I think it really underscores what we were saying earlier about actually there are things needed at all kinds of levels in all kinds of different ways to tackle this because it's not just a simple issue with a simple 
solution there's so many mm. complicating factors that lead into these situations and these experiences and that's why the violence against women and girls action plan has always looked at we began with the different aspects the early education Mm -hmm. the uh, criminal justice response the multi-agency work and uh, support in the victims and survivors to encompass a holistic Mm -hmm. approach so that's not nothing new it's (laughs) on the policy and government agenda and uh, that's the aim but it's how far that happens Mm. in practice yeah, and unfortunately yeah. we know, you know, well, I mean, for Leslie and I, obviously our area is more the health and social care field than the criminal justice one, but we know that money for, for intervention, early intervention, preventative work just doesn't exist. Yeah. It's just not there anymore, is no. it? Even though it's, it is part of what should be happening, it doesn't happen. So, yeah, and like you said earlier, you're up against that challenge of, biggest sort of structures and issues with the economy and how that feeds into what's funded and what's not funded so that's it feels like yeah. a bleak note to end on though do we have yeah. anything more positive to <laughs> to finish the conversation with well we'll definitely come back <laughs> if you're doing more on the podcast and you can wait a couple of years yeah, <laughs> for, for, yeah. The, for the more qualitative <laughs> in-depth research that looks at constructions and yeah person how perceptions are formed and what the implications of that are yeah definitely we'd love to have you back to talk about that that'd be really interesting to hear what you find out um but yeah thank you so much nicola and demi for coming in and spending the time to talk to us about your research today it's been absolutely fascinating and really important conversation as well so thank you thank you thank you very much and goodbye to our listeners goodbye everyone You have been listening to The Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr. Sarah Lombe. And Dr. Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find a full transcript of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye. Bye.